Reading, short and deep. Hi, I'm Jesse. And I'm Eric. And today we're reading short and deep, The Glass of Supreme Moments uh, by Barry Payne. Probably first published in 1892 in a uh, collection of uh, Payne's stories. I've read a few of his things, but this this is the one that stands out to me. Have you had you heard of him? He was kind of big in the late 19th century. I discovered that doing research for our discussion, Jesse. But before you had recommended to him, had recommended him to me, I was ignorant of of that. Mm. I'm still ignorant of lots of other things. Mm. Um, I, I I really like this story. I don't. I don't think I have a hundred percent handle on it, but um, I I do see a lot of possibilities created by it, <laughs> or at least reflections. It, it reminds me a lot of a, a story by H. G. Wells uh, called "The Door in the Wall," which is about a boy who goes through a door in a, a green door in a wall and discovers a garden, um, and in that garden there's a woman. And the woman has a book, and the boy reads uh, his own life story in the book. And the girl, uh, the woman, in fact, suggests he not turn the page further. She restrains his hand, uh, but he insists, and that pops him out of the garden, and he's on the street again. Um, And then for the rest of his life and the rest of the story, he is um, chasing after that door. Every time he sees it, he tries to go through it and never gets through it until one day his body is found, discovered uh, in uh, the bottom of an excavation for a new building that had a door uh, guarding a wall that should have been locked. And uh, hmm. so it's it's a kind of a similar story from a similar era. I don't know if, if that was in the air. <laughs> There's something in the air in this story, too. Well, what did you make of this? It's a it's a bit interesting, a bit different. I liked it a lot. Um, just to give a, a quick summary, um, the story, uh, the glass of supreme moments, uh, begins. Lucas Morn sat in his college rooms when the winter afternoon met the evening, depressed and dull. Um, it couldn't. But depressed and dull could be a personification of the winter afternoon. Um, but if so, it is a uh, it is a uh, an objective correlative. That is to say, Lucas Morn is depressed and feeling dull also, uh, as we will come to find out. He he's had an encounter with some other fellows in college. They've left uh, the odor of Latakia, a kind of rich tobacco. Um, uh, remains in the room and the smoke sort of gathers around. Uh, He sits and looks at his fireplace and for the first time notices that it's actually a staircase. He can see the first five steps, which are silver and crystal, but then he can't see further up because of uh, the fog that's come in through the window. He winds up meeting a veiled lady who is coming down the staircase to talk to him. And she invites him up the staircase into a room. 
H.G. Wells would have liked that. Mm -hmm. uh, it turns out that his feeling of disaffection has to do with never actually being supreme. He's, he, the opening um, incident that we're told about is him coming in second in a foot race. Mm -hmm. uh, and the guy who came in first is actually there um, in his room. So you know, he always feels like, well, yeah, you know, I'm a good athlete, but I'm just not a supreme athlete. Um, so the woman takes him up and uh, lets him see set in the floor of this room he climbs to, a floor with palladian tiling, a black and white checkerboard. There is what looks like a, a silver inset in the floor, but maybe it's not silver since ripples seem to go over it. And he's told that if you look into this and say the name of a person or think of a person, you will be able to see the supreme moment of that person's life, whether it's past, present or future. Or if not that that incident, that it will be, you know, an exemplary incident of the supreme moments of that person's life. And of course, uh, instantly we're wondering, well, what's going to happen when he says his own name? Mm -hmm. Right. Um, and then follows a long discussion punctuated by seeing the supreme moments of the lives of the individuals who had just recently left his college rooms um, with the lady about the meaning of success in life. At the end of which <clears throat> he wants to see her unveiled. She takes off her veil. She is paler than he would have expected, although as beautiful as he had surmised from her form and her posture and her, her demeanor. And her lips are more scarlet. Uh, he is told that she had been known, she's timeless, and had been known in ancient Rome, uh, in ancient times as uh, Libitina. And uh, he bends down to kiss her, right, now that she's removed her veil at his request. And she says, stay, in a hurried whisper. If you kiss me, you will die. He smiled triumphantly, this fellow who's been after a sense of supreme moment. But I shall die kissing you, he said. Mm. And so their lips met. Her lips were scarlet, but they were cold. And that's the end of the story. So the silence that follows is the rest of the story of Lucas Morn. He obviously he's he's dead now um, to him. Dying became or dying with the goddess of death um, was his supreme moment. Um, yeah. And, and and that's that's an interesting story that all by itself. It's an interesting story. Um, and I, I just want to insert a Pro, a, a foreshadowing comment here. This story makes enormous use of two classic sources. And a question that I have is, do we understand the story fully if we don't understand its relation to these two classic sources? But I'm not going to pursue that question yet because We've already gone far enough to get something out of this story, and I'd like to know what you're thinking. Well, um, I think one way of reading it is that this is uh, 
a way of figuring out why life is worth living um, and maybe not figuring that out is the problem for the narrator or the main character I should say um, I think another thing that's going on is that he's dying um, his name is pretty pretty uh, clearly <laughs> um, about something Lucas Morn M-O-R-N-E could be M-O-R-N, right? Morning. Or M-O-U-R-N. And Lucas, meaning light. No, um, actually. Or clear, right? Luke, Lucas is uh, the English version of Luke. It's the name of the physician who accompanies St. Paul, or, or the Apostle Paul, on his travels around the ancient Near East trying to convert people. We also have a character Paul named Paul in here. Uh, Paul Reese. Paul, you know, so I, yeah, I, did, I didn't, I didn't think of that. Um, there is uh, Lucas does mean light. Um, it's it, well, it, if it comes from if it comes from Lux, yeah, but but Saint Luke doesn't. Well, um, it made me uh, the the thing that I was really surprised after rereading the story. I looked at the date and I thought, oh, maybe this is from a poem um, by uh, Dylan Thomas, if you know the one I mean. Um, go gentle into that good night. Yeah, do not, because that fits with the theme of the story incredibly well. Rage, rage against the dying of light. You know it. Old age should burn and rave at close of day. Rage, rage against the dying of the light. The wise men at their end know dark is right. Because their words had forked no lightning, they do not go gentle into that good night. Good men, the last wave by, crying now bright, their frail deeds might have danced in a green bay. Rage, rage against the dying of the light. Wild men who caught and sang the sun in, fli- the sun in flight and learned too late that they grieved it on its way do not go gentle into that good night. Grave men near death who see the blinding sight. Blind eyes could blaze like meteors and be gay. Rage, rage against the dying of the light. And you, my father, there on the sad height, curse, bless me now. With your fierce tears, I pray, do not go gentle into that good night. Rage, rage against the dying of the light. That to, to me, that's sort of the same theme as this. Like, this is a guy who, over and over again, reflects on the fact that he has no enthusiasms. His his interest in in running is dull. He's discontented with everything. And he is incredibly envious of his three companions, his tea-drinking companions, and obviously deeply depressed. I mean, in the first first paragraph, it goes, Lucas Morn sat in his college rooms when the winter afternoon met evening depressed and dull. Yeah, it could be that the day is depressed. There were various reasons for his depression. He was beginning to be a little nervous about his health. A week before, he had run in a run second in a mile race, the finish of which had been a terrible struggle. Ever since then, any violent exertion or excitement had brought on symptoms which were painful. It could be that he's got some terrible diseases and dying, but even if that's not true, he's also incredibly depressed and discontented, lacking enthusiasm. And then we get this almost bizarre sentence, um, unless... 
I mean, I've been depressed, but never like this. This is seem like clinical depression. Listen to this. Nothing is so unclean as a used teacup. Nothing is so cold as toast, which had once been hot. And the concrete expression of dejection is crumbs. Like, Jesus, that is depressing. <laughs> I mean, how, how you yes, sit and you see a, a teacup, uh, just wash it, dude. Right? He is incredibly depressed. And so, at some point, it feels like with the atmosphere, he keeps talking about the atmosphere and the difficulty breathing. Right now, where I am, there's a lot of smoke in the air from the forest fires. It makes it hard to breathe. Makes it um, an exertion to go out and do things. And his friend had been smoking, right? That that powerful Middle Eastern uh, tobacco. And he says that it... It had a Latakia had a way of rolling itself all around the atmosphere, and kicking. That's interesting. And then he mentions the gas lamp, and then the fireplace, and then there's this fog. It's almost like he's choking. And in my mind, it might be that like he forgot to uh, let the chimney up, uh, the flue up, so that you know his fire is smoking into his room, and he's he's choking and dying. And he has this quasi-dream that he even acknowledges in his, in his thoughts is a dream. And that this is him dying from smoking or dying from the smoke of him, the, the organs of the uh, church, he thinks. That could be the fire alarm. I don't know what's going on exactly, but it, it's a long, ponderous, thoughtful piece about sort of jealousy and... Um, and jealousy of, of, not of talent exactly, although that's there too, but of enthusiasm. And that is a, a very strange, ponderous fantasy story, if that's what this is. So that's what I'm thinking. <laughs> what are you yeah. thinking? Well, um, <laughs> so here we have this problem um, of, of reference. I, I know that I'm probably not a typical reader here. Um, the second, by repute at least, the second most widely distributed uh, book of the classic period and the last great work of the classic period is Boethius' Consolation of Philosophy. Mm. Um in Consolation of Philosophy, Boethius, who had been both a poet and a, uh, a public figure, uh, a statesman and, uh, and uh, a plotter in government intrigue, uh, Boethius uh, was uh, imprisoned. Uh, eventually, in fact, he's executed for his political activities. But in that year that he is in prison, he composes the Consolation of Philosophy. It's an extraordinary short book in which philosophy in the person of a woman appears in his cell and they discuss things together. He, Boethius, speaking in prose and she, philosophy, responding in verse. And they discuss such things as how there can be bad if there is a good and all-powerful God in the world. 
the problem of theodicy. They discuss what it means to make a good life. They discuss what it is to do something that is virtuous. They discuss what it is to be content. And one of the great messages of that book, putting aside particular philosophical um, arguments, is in the title. That is, if we look at something philosophically, it will console us. Or, you know, stone walls do not a prison make, nor iron bars a cage. Um, This idea that a colloquy with a beautiful woman who appears in your stone room can give you um, a new insight into the meaning of life is, as I say, the second most widely distributed and the last great text of the classic period. It is said that between its public, its, its creation in the sixth century and the invention of the printing press, it was the single most widely read book in Western Europe with the exception of the Bible. Right. It just got copied and copied and copied. And, and now there are hundreds of, cop- of handwritten copies of it extant to this day. That's how frequently it got copied that even to this day, we still have 400 or so copies of this book. This is a version of the consolation of philosophy. Mm. Right. Our guy goes out of his his stone room and he confronts this beautiful woman. But instead of just having discussion with her. He decides that all of her answers um, are inadequate to his need for a supreme moment. Right. And so instead of being consoled by her, he, in a way, is consoled by the notion of death. Right. Right. Uh, It is beautiful and attractive to him. So that in one way, I see these ancient this ancient uh, text here. Now, the particulars have to do with, among other things, as you say, Latakia. Latakia is so strong a tobacco. I used to smoke a pipe when I was a youngster. Um, so strong a tobacco that almost nobody actually ever smokes Latakia by mm-hmm. itself. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it's blended with other things. Uh, Virginia gold is a, is a common one in America um, to smooth it out. Um, When he sees this woman, he looks and sees her veiled and he wants to see what she really looks like. He begins by saying, "Um, I had a friend who traveled in the east and he said that in Syria and she says, I know. He doesn't even get to say, you know, women wear veils. She knows and she's got that's it. I'm I'm going to stay veiled just the way women do in the East, except for now. So there is an aspect of Orientalism playing through this story that um, lets us know that um, it's like a hookah dream. You know, mm-hmm. it's as if it were mm-hmm. opium hashish. Um, and yet it's also a fairy tale because all of the colors that are described are gold and silver. And, you know, they, they are all the colors that one would expect of a fairy tale. And our guy is almost like a princess who is mm. in his tower. Right. Um, yeah. But is not going to go up. And, you know, right now, here's the other the other ancient text. We are told. Right. Um, he, he, he says. Uh, our fellow uh, Lucas Morn, um, who is both mourning and uh, you know grieving, and he is in the morning 
compared to the the dying winter afternoon, dying into night in that first sentence that you quoted. Um, He says, this is the second time you have spoken of the gods, and yet we are in the 19th century, are we? Mm. She replies, I am very old and very young. Time is nothing to me. It does not change me. Yesterday in Italy, each grave and stream spoke of divinity. Non omnis moriar, sang one in confidence. Non omnis moriar, I heard his voice, and now he is past and gone from the world. We read him still, said Lucas Morn with a little pride. He was not intending to take the classical tripos, that is the, the honors exam at the end of a particular field of study, uh, but he had, had, with the help of a translation, read that ode from which she was quoting. She did not heed his interruption in the least and went on speaking. So, okay, we got a hint here. There's a famous ode that you would know if you were going for a degree in the classics that has non omnis moriar in it, and you would still read it. Now, that that particular ode turns out to be um, the a famous ode, maybe the most famous ode by Horace, who is considered the second most powerful poet of Roman classic poetry, right after Virgil. Um, here's the poem. I have created a monument more lasting than bronze and loftier than the royal structure of the pyramids, that which neither devouring rain nor the unrestrained north wind may be able to destroy, nor the immeasurable succession of years and the flight of time. I shall not wholly die. That's what non non omnis moriar means. I shall not wholly die. And a greater part of me will evade libitina, the goddess of death, will evade libitina continually. I, newly risen, may be strengthened with ensuing praise so long as the high priest climbs the Capitoline, that's one of the hills of Rome, with a silent maiden. It may be said that where the raging uh, Aphidus roars and where, short of water, Daunus ruled his rustic people, Powerful from a humble birth, I first brought Aeolian verse to Italian measures. Assume the arrogance sought for by those who have a claim to recognition, and with the Delphian laurel, Melpomene willingly crown my head. So Horace is saying, I am such a goddamn good writer that the muse of tragic poetry, Melpomene, is going to put a crown of laurels on my head, right? Mm-hmm. And that way I will evade Libitina. In fact, in, in Payne's story, the, the veiled woman says that she was known as Libitina, right? That right. ancient goddess right. of death. So Horace is saying, I'm going to be the winner permanently. I'm going to have the laurels. And in fact, in that sense, he does not totally die. He will not totally die. And Horace is right because we still read him. Right. But our guy, when he kisses Libitina, totally dies. Right? He totally dies. So we're, we're reminded of what's going on here. The classic view of the world suggests one thing. This suggests something else. The first envy, the first dis-ease that Lucas Morn relates is that he has lost a foot race. 
at the end of which in the classic world, the winner gets a crown of laurels. So he doesn't like that he's not getting a crown of laurels. Now, of the three people, each one of whom um, Lucas gets to see his supreme moment, the most interesting to me in terms of this being a story mm. is one who is um, the writer, Finsale. Right. Yep. right? And it says, and when we see Finsale, right, and he's in a crappy garret room with pieces of paper all over the place and he's looking, you know, a little bit distraught. How can those uh, moments like the one I just described, how can those, Lucas asks the veiled lady, be the supreme moments in Finsale's life? He looked poor and shabby and the room was positively wretched. Where does the ecstasy come in? He has just finished his novel, she says, and he is quite madly in love with it. Some of it is very good and some of it, from merely physical reasons, is very bad. He was half starved when he was writing it and it is not possible to write very well when one is half starved, but he loves it. I am speaking of all this as if, like the picture of it, it were present, though, of course, it has not happened yet. But I will tell you more. I will show you, in this case at least, what these moments of ecstasy are worth. Some of Finsale's book, I have said, is very good, and some of it is very bad. But none of it is what people want. He will take it to publisher after publisher, and they will refuse it. After three years, it will at last be published, and it will not succeed in the least. And all through these years of failure, he will recall from time to time the splendid joy he felt at finishing that book and how glad he was that he had made it. The thought of that past ec ecstasy will make the torture all the worse. This passage about Finsale suggests two things. In general, if you have a supreme moment, you will suffer for it forever. The second thing it suggests is that if you try to write a story, unlike Horace, you will not have laurels but like Horace, you will be dead. And so, in a very strange way, what Lucas chooses to do by kissing this lady now unveiled is to let his supreme moment coincide with his death mm. so that he will, in fact, never be tortured by the supreme moment of his life. And in that regard, he really does manage to make a permanent place for himself in the glass of supreme moments. It, it, it's a pro-suicide story in a, in, a, in a certain sense, or if, if that's what's happening, or at least embracing death. And I, I like that Libertina, goddess of funerals for ancient Rome, is her name is Freedom in a certain sense. <laughs> um, I also I want to point out a, a curious little line that it it feels like this story could have gone another way and uh, apparently uh, Payne had written a lot of humorous pieces and this is almost that there's a couple of points in the story where it, it almost goes into a funny story 
but this is the closest, I think, and, and, and the most curious. Um, this is on the bottom of page 90 uh, that uh, in my copy. Uh, yes, answered the veiled woman. He will have nothing quite like the ecstasy which he had felt at winning that race. He will marry and have children, and his married life will be happy, but the happiness will not be so intense. There is an emotion meter outside this room. Wow, it's like a it's a science fiction story suddenly, you know, which measures such things. And then our our hero Lucas says, "Now, if one wanted to bet on a race," he began. He's <laughs> just right. He's just turned this into uh and and fitting with how how odd he is when he he suddenly notices that this fireplace had become a staircase. He felt too lazy to wonder much at this. This is very much dream logic, right? It, 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 he would have thought that things had altered back again by tomorrow. It would be worthwhile to sell the staircase, <laughs> seeing as its steps were fashioned of silver and crystal. Um, his mind is working at all angles, even against the, the sort of the tenor and the tone of the story. And to me, this... And the fact that, yeah, that of the three stories we're told of the of the friends of Lucas Morn, or at least the companions of Lucas Morn, the rivals of Lucas Morn, um, the one that hits home the hardest for us is the one about the writer, who has both good and bad in his own writing. And I just think about Barry Payne writing that, and he's winking to himself, right? Yeah. I'm I'm not gonna go down and he's 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 known he's it he was a known writer he but he's not he knows he's not um he's not Horace and yeah there's something um aspirational about this very sad lack of aspirational story and uh, it somehow works I think. It's I think very, you're right. I it's think a, it's very I think that, odd, and I I, I just I, I don't know how this story fits into any other sort of genre or anything, but I I like it. What were you going to say? Well, as I say, I, I do think that it fits into this this genre of philosophical dialogue. Yeah, I think, I think you're right. The relation to Boethius, uh, and and because dialogues typically reveal more than one side of an issue, um, I think we've got something here. It it is a it is a pro suicide um, story, but it's also pro suicide for those who cannot be content to have a life. Mm-hmm. But there's always more to say. And remember, you can always freely access the materials discussed on these podcasts by going to sffaudio.com and clicking on the link for reading short and deep.